After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. It's Mind Rolling Podcast time again with Raghu Marcus and me, David Silver. Welcome. Hi, Raghu. Hi, David. So what's up today? Up today is uh, we get to get together. We get to get together. <laughs> Something <laughs> wrong with that. Uh, with, with somebody. Uh, we keep talking about people in the new generation, and we talk about... Um, making whatever experience we have over the last uh, decades uh, and the friends that we have and introducing them to everybody and hopefully the practical experience uh, means something and can prove a value. And uh, today we have somebody who is in, in that second generation, third generation, I'm not even sure, but uh, his name is Noel Levine and uh, He's somebody I've never met, and David, you've never met before, no. I don't believe. Um, and But we know of Noah. He's famous for a book, Dharma Punks, uh, where he tells his story. He's the son of uh, Stephen and Andrea Levine as well, and Stephen has very much been part of uh, our greater family uh, for a long time and worked closely with Ramdas and has uh, written some amazing books around death and uh death process, shall we say. So this, this was a great thing to, uh, to get with Noah today, as you'll hear uh, in a few minutes. But, yeah, we have a few things to, uh, to talk about before Noah. And, yes. Uh, yes. The main one, which is very exciting, is uh, T-shirts. T-shirts. We have now available for you the most beautiful T-shirts. And, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to do a barker outside the, uh, outside the shop stuff here, but uh, Raghu, you know a little bit more detail about what they are. So let's talk about that for a minute. Barker? You know, the guy goes, roll up, roll up, your T-shirts are inside. <laughs> okay, a carny kind of yeah. a thing, yeah. There is around, I don't know, 15, 20 of these T-shirts. We, we did a thing at MindPod Network uh, where we worked with uh, a vendor, and we don't have to carry any of the stock. And uh, we get just enough money so that if enough people buy these T-shirts, we get... Uh, it's kind of like an affiliate thing, really, Dave. Uh, yeah. it's, uh, we get a little piece of, of the, of the price and, and these are anywhere from 18 to $50, something like that, because they're not just t-shirts. That's the beauty of this thing. You go in and you click on, I mean, we have J Jack Cornfield, uh, the jewel in the Lotus from his book. We've got Ram Dass, a beautiful sketch of him, uh, that's like never been even seen before. Yeah, from a so picture can, that's yeah. really cool. Wear it uh, on your chest, exactly. <laughs> and we've the got chakras are, we have two good ones with chakras. The Beautiful. chakras, yeah. Uh, one's in color on black, and one is in black and white. The whole thing, so you have black and white chakras, or you can have colored chakras depending on what color you prefer. Yeah, but you can also get them in a hoodie. You can get them in a, um, a, a sweatshirt. You can get them in tank tops. You can get women's, men's. You just click on, this is great, you just click on it. There's also different colors. You can pick your color. You can pick whether the, the, uh, the image is on the front or the back. 
it's uh, it's quite a fabulous thing. You know, so just a plain old T-shirt's around what twenty odd bucks. But if you go, Dave, now and you go to mindpodnetwork.com, everybody, and you we put it Noah put it right in the uh, menu, tees and accessories or whatever. What does it say? Um. We, by the way, there's also a phone case. Did you know that? An iPhone no, I, case. I, I just learned that yesterday. That, uh, With, who knew it? What does it have written on it? It's, it's got... What is it? What does it say? <laughs> it's got the... It's the a moon and star from Be Here Now. It is so oh. cool. I mean, I cannot resist getting it. you got to figure out what's, which kind of iPhone it is. I don't know if it's the 6 or the 5. But uh, anyhow, go to mindpodnetwork.com, and it's there's 20% uh, off for the rest of the month for everybody. Here's the code. You just got to go mindpodnetwork, and then we're going to put this code up on, on, the, uh, on the site. But uh, it's 20P, as in Peter, E as in Edward, 0331. So just go mindpodnetwork, 20PE0331. You get 20 for, 20% off. For the rest of the month, they're really cool. I mean, there's just a lot of great. Om Mani Padme Hung. There's an Om. There's a peace sign. There's the uh, our own mind rolling uh, T-shirts. There's brushed Enso, which is like this Japanese uh, wave kind of thing. Uh, Third Eye. Uh, it's just a lot of these. This uh, this was a, a f- and by the way, and we're going to thank Jeremy on this, right, Dave? That we didn't, folks. If you think we thought this up ourselves, you have no idea that we had no idea, none. Jeremy wrote to us and said, "Hey, I want to put this thing together for you guys to help support what you're doing and make it a fun thing for people to have T-shirts that relate with what what MindPod Network is." And Jeremy put it all together, the designs, the whole thing, made the arrangement with Design by Humans who is the vendor. So a big, big thank you. That's how it happens to us here, Dave, right? I mean, everybody we've met and people just come up out of the blue and said, we want to help what you're doing. And uh, this is uh, extraordinarily gratifying. So we're really happy about that. So that's, here's another way you guys can support what we're doing and get a really cool t-shirt at the same time. By the way, also, of course, we have our Amazon, um, affiliate and want you to continue uh buying whatever you need from them so we get some support that way uh and i have an, an something new dave i remember i've in fact last time i think last podcast you went on about the tea the tool the um yeah cardamom yeah. tea that we love but so ginger. happened i had to stop stop drinking milk okay for a while just a dietary thing uh-huh. I'm, and i'm bereft I'll tell you, I am completely bereft. Not only no milk, no sugar, okay? This is like... So um, I turned to a company that I knew about called Organic India, and they have this tea line. They're fabulous. I actually have met them some time ago, and a friend of mine was involved with them. And I just went into, you know, to Whole Foods and got myself an Organic India Tulsi tea. Tulsi, Mm. like the beads that... You know, come. Uh, what are they called in English? Do you know what Tulsi is in English? Is it uh, holy basil? Right, holy basil. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, sacred to uh, Krishna. So whenever you go to India and you go to Brindavan, where Krishna cavorted with the cowgirls, uh, there's Tulsi everywhere. So I love Tulsi. So I started drinking this stuff, Dave. It's good, right? It's really good. I mean, and and I'm so used to having, you know, strong tea and so on. So I thought in the beginning it was a little like dishwater-ish. Uh, but I got, uh, once I my whole system calmed down, I got... Uh, my phone, your phone is, is ringing. ringing. Okay, well, turn your phone off. Okay, it's okay, okay. hang on. Um, go and oh, just the one yeah, ring. It's okay. okay. Um, so, I'm so popular, you know, people just yeah. call me. <laughs> You know, uh, Tulsi, it's funny. I was watching TV yesterday when I got home from the shoot, and um, uh, I saw a congresswoman talking on CNN who was the first congresswoman I've ever seen recently who was just amazing, and she's called Tulsi. I think her name is Tulsi Barwood. I'm not sure no, about that. I think there I aren't too many that. Tulsis in, in the United States House of Representatives, and she was speaking truth 
and uh, is, is quite beautiful woman, uh, yeah. I might add. Um, and not that that would affect me at all, of course. Nothing. But she's a smart, smart woman and, and got some great views and seems to be liberated from the, uh, the sort of, you know, talking points that all those people do. See you again, people calling. It's, I can't, it won't right. stop. <laughs> boom, boom. It's across the room. So if I walk across the room, I can turn it off. But otherwise, hmm. okay, people I don't like know what to stuff. say about you. We're doing you know, a we're podcast real. now. Robots, for fuck's sake. We're real. You know, this is if it rings once more, it's too real. Okay. Well, what do you want me to do? I mean, nothing. So Just across. keep talking about my that vast lady. mansion. It's so far away. I can't. Yeah. Oh, God help us. Uh, and uh Tulsi, okay, uh, somebody who's hopefully going to be up and coming in the political arena, yeah. right? Um, well, she's on the Armed Services Committee, which uh, is is very oh, that's not nothing. crucial to money spending and uh, right. the next mistake we make as a nation. Yeah, um, I want to also uh, recommend something else uh, from Amazon, which would be the new Van Morrison people. We love Ben Morrison, and he's got a record coming out called Duets, where he's revi revisiting some of his uh, best songs, and, and he's working with people like Stevie Winwood and Mark Knopfler. Um, and even uh, if you are not that familiar with Van, although yeah, it's hard to believe, but it could be, right? I mean, he's like uh, already a couple of generations moved on, right? And uh, you've got to yeah, check uh, out Van. Uh, Van I knew Morrison. Who Frank Sinatra was. He wasn't my generation, you know. Yeah. So we um, love Frank. Uh, you know, too, but, but you know, it's not so. I mean, people play him on classic rock. You'll hear him in the supermarket if you don't hear him anywhere else. You know. Well, and I have a record too. Uh, also, uh, uh, Irish Heartbeat, I think it's called. Uh, Vans, yeah. Uh, which he does with the Chieftains. And if you don't know the Chieftains, go and get a Chieftains record because they are the best. They're an Irish folk group that plays with incredible rhythm and is very authentic. Mm. And I've seen them a few times. They're wonderful, actually. Yeah. Um, so we both have Van Morrison stories, I think, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell mine first. And it this is, uh, of course, the, the record that absolutely blew us all apart uh, was Astro Weeks, which remains, as far as I'm concerned, one of the top five or ten records ever made. I mean, it's just a spectacular record. Check it out. But uh, when I was running that rock and roll station back in the day, I was, uh, the station put together a uh, rock uh, festival weekend, one of the earliest of, the types, of its type in Montreal. And Van was the headliner. And so he came and we met him and he, we had a room, green room for him in the back and uh, he, he put his equipment out and his guitar and everything, and, and he came out for a smoke or something. Next thing, about 20 minutes later, I hear all this weird turmoilish kind of stuff going on, if that's a word. Um, and he, uh, somebody comes and tells me what happened, and which was some itinerant hippie friend of ours, like Hanger Honor, that we let backstage went over into Van's green room <laughs> and picked up his guitar and started playing it when Van oh. came in. Oh. Well, he, he, was, he was quitting. He was absolutely, I'm not going on. What kind of thing are you running here? And so on. It was a horrible, uptight <laughs> moment. We had like, I don't know how many people were in there, you know, 10, 15,000 at the time or something um, in, in a stadium, in an outdoor, a small outdoor stadium in Montreal. So it was a really, really bad situation. <laughs> at the time, I happened to be with uh, my girlfriend at the time, was an Indian woman named Chitra. And um, she was one of these classical Indian uh, beauties. And so she was standing with me, and I, had, I said, Van, let's go out. We'll go out. We'll grab something to eat. We'll get this. will all be. You know. So he agreed to come out. And mostly probably because he wanted to be around this woman um, because I could tell he gave her that sideways look, you know <laughs> what I mean? So he came out with his guitar player. Can't remember his name. He was great, though. Uh, and we went out, and Van liked to drink, and he got... Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, um, folks, there are some concerts where he didn't make it through, <laughs> and uh, and you wouldn't have wanted to. He would become kind of belligerent. Um, but then there was times when he didn't go over the line, and this was particularly one of those times where he just got to where he he brushed off the bullshit that went on with this guy, and he went on and, and just... Uh, it was one of his spectacular, and he was spectacular, transcendent music uh, performances when he wanted to. And the whole thing was over, and I walked him to the limo, and uh, he was in a good shape. And just before he shook my hand, and he said, stay solid, man. And I've always carried that with me. I love that little thing of his, mm. stay solid, stay solid. We should all stay solid. That's my Van Morrison story. Wow, what's yours? Uh, well, I've, I have a couple actually. Um, Van was a very temperamental artist, a very sensitive artist, and a great musician. One time, he did a little performance at a club on Seventy Second Street, in New York. I forgot the name of the place. It was on Seventy Second and Columbus, somewhere around there. And um, I went, uh, and the place was sort of empty-ish. And so he came on stage, and then some people were talking. So he, I mean, this is a slight fiction because I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like this. Well, if you're all going to talk, then I don't want to look at you. And I certainly don't want to sing. Hey, Patrick, hand me the tenor, will you? Hmm. And someone handed him a tenor sax and he played the entire concert with his back to the audience and never sang and just played oh my sax. God. And <laughs> it was actually a very good performance. He's a very fine musician. Yeah. The story's more personal. Uh, when I was doing my TV talk show in Boston in the late 60s, I had an agent and um, <clears throat> called Richard Rogers. And one day, Richard Rogers turned up at my house in Cambridge uh, with a very, very uh, sort of ragged-looking individual who I did not know uh, with red hair and said, uh, David, uh, this is Van Morrison's first day in Boston. And he's thinking of moving here from Ireland. And uh, I thought you two should get together. Well, so he came in. And uh, nothing interested him until I uh, offered him a, a, a dark ale. Um, and uh, then we talked for several hours and he asked me questions about what it was like to live on the East Coast of the United States. And he could not possibly have been more timid. He was like the timid. Now, I loved them, his band, which is where... And we, he was in that uh, band at that time. Uh, he just left them, I think. And they had a, a song called Here Comes the Night and mm -hmm. Brown Eyed Girl and all mm. that stuff. And they were just like the Stones. They were amazing. People loved them in, in, in England. Uh, so I was in awe of him, but he was just a, a very, he seemed like a very scared person. He didn't really want to come to America, but he felt like he had to. Had a great time with him and um, cherished my time. You know, he didn't say stay solid to me, but he did say thank you for being my friend. And that was just wonderful. Mm. And the other, the other thing was that I did see the Van Morrison Bob Dylan show, um, which toured about, 10 years ago, I guess, where Van and Bob agreed to alternate nights. One night Van opened and Bob closed, the next night Bob opened and Van closed. That's how much respect Dylan had for Van Morrison, that he would open for him every mm. alternate night. And I went to a show uh, with the two of them, and it was absolutely amazing, because they're very different, but they both have that intensity, that great intensity of the rare thing, which is an artist pop star. I mean, we think they're all artists, or we think they're all pop stars, but some of them are both, and you know, the Leonard Coins and Bruce Springsteens and Jeff Buckley's and so on. And, and, and you know, it was just a marvelous experience to me. I, I, mm. I thought that, that Van was just like you. I mean, we all just love him. And he's still going. He's still going. Uh, he's, well, this I, record duets, I mean, he, you know, taking, I, which I love the idea, and I've heard a little bit, you know, they have a couple of previews uh, that you can find on the net. And the idea of working with some of these wonderful people and, and revisiting these, uh, he was just a, a fabulous songwriter. And uh, so Van the Man, he the man. And I hope, we, I hope he does a tour here in Stateside so we can get to see some of this. It would be great. Um, All right. Yeah, there we go with that. I, uh, by the way, uh, last time, last podcast, I think I had a, yeah, I had that story from stories from the end of the world. Remember, oh, it was the guru in India? God help us! Is there another the one testicles coming? On? No, no, I, no, I, I please just... don't repeat it. Just, no? it makes me shiver. <laughs> I really kind of like my testicles. You know <laughs> yes, I know. I'm so sorry, uh, but I... no, I wanted to counter that with something. 
Okay. Positive. Okay. Oh, oh, really? Yes. Wow. Wow. This is new. <laughs> this is about a story of, it's a true story, around 9-11, of all things. And what happened is, and this story is from a stewardess who was flying on a plane when that happened from Europe oh. to America. And uh, they were uh, told that um, a, fabrica a fabrication about why they had to land, because everything that was going to the United States was shunted, right? You could not fly into the United States. So they, they, but they did not tell why. And the stewardess, uh, you know, it was something about fuel or this or that, whatever. And they landed in Gander, Newfoundland. Okay? If you've gone to Europe, you pass over Gander. You always look down there and go and see this, like, looks like desolate place. It is. My it's sister's going to kill me because she lives there and she's a gigantic advocate. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. But here, here what happened is, so they landed... They could, uh, 57 planes, I believe, had landed, okay, <laughs> at Gander, that were on the way to the States. And they finally told the people what had happened, or they found out somehow with cell phone, whatever, at that time. Somebody got through. And so the news got out, and of course there was this shock. And, uh, but then they could not get off the plane. They said, okay, we're going to schedule people to get off the plane and, and be able to be processed through, right? They couldn't process, I mean, thousands of people. So uh, they, that particular, their plane, she said, uh, at 10 o'clock at night was told that 11 o'clock the next morning they would be processed, okay? So they had to stay on the plane all night. And all of these people on all of these planes, one after the other, would get off. They were taken into town, uh, finally. And the whole town, because there was not enough hotels, right? The entire town, uh, and I think Gander is the name of the airport. I think there's a St. Louis something. There's a town uh, that where Gander is, I believe. That whole town mobilized and took care of these thousands of people through their schools, through their auditoriums, through their whatever facility they had. They came with blankets. They came with lunch. They came with food. They did tours. They took them around to show them the highlights of the area and so on and so <laughs> forth. Me for laughing. The, the, the highlights of Newfoundland. Okay. Sorry. My, my sister, she's going to get you for this, okay? I'm there, deliberately provoking her so yeah, that she communicate right. with me for once. Yeah, you know? Watch out. Anyhow. All right. <laughs> um, so uh, this stewardess just related that how a, an entire town had set aside everything to accommodate and uh, make these people feel comfortable. And it was an extraordinary thing because it was mobilized just by these individuals. It wasn't a government edict or anything like that. It was just motivated by pure, unadulterated, caring, compassion. And, uh, and, and this steward has said, I never saw anything like this in my entire life, how we were all taken care of in this small little town in Newfoundland. And I saw the, it was a post on Facebook actually. And I saw my sister actually gone on and said, that tells you about what kind of people we are living here. What kind of people, uh, Newfies they're called are, you know, they're special and they are obviously pretty special. So how about that for a positive Yeah, bows story. to that. We bow to those people and, uh, yeah. you know, and I thank you very much for that, you know. I mean, the people in New York City were wonderful on that day, That's too, true. actually, because I was there and yeah. uh, there was no rioting. There, were, there was no crime. Uh, people were extremely friendly to each other and it was just like a different New York City, but it yeah. took a, a massive, horrendous incident to yeah. bring that about and that's but isn't that, that indicative yeah. of of our society our world in general what it takes sometimes to for transformation and, and for being who we truly are caring yeah, people, and people step up i was walking down fifth avenue not that long ago in the midtown area and it, it was very crowded and about 10 or 15 feet in front of me there was a family uh, an older man and uh, three women. And as I was walking, he collapsed. 
Um, and the number of people who came out of the woodwork within 30 seconds was amazing to me. There were at least 20 people, including myself, surrounding this man and um, offering to help in any way, shape or form. And you're right, you know, uh, crisis brings about uh, the best in people sometimes. Actually, usually, I think. I, I don't think it usually results in, in, in bad stuff. And, and it shows what, what, you know, what's inside of us. Yeah. The heart that the beats that um, the spiritual heart and it comes to it shoots to the surface when something like that happens yeah. and you know it should probably be indicative of what our potential is rather exactly than, you know exactly you know. david exactly well i think we better get on here with uh yeah, we have we, mr levine yeah yes we got noah coming up here so everybody uh uh here is uh, our conversation with noah levine Hi, it's Mind Rolling, David Silver and Raghu Marcus. Today we have an extra special guest who's somebody I've never met, and he's like part of our family, which is really strange to me. Uh, and it's Noah Levine, and Stephen is, and Andrea are his, his parents. And uh, boy, am I happy to meet you, Noah. Thank you. Very happy to join you guys on the, on the cast. Yes, yes. And uh, David, I always like David to do the introductions because uh, he is far more erudite than I could <laughs> ever be. I, you know, I don't like to start off with a negative, but I don't not you know, I don't totally agree with that. But uh, I would say that um, to start off with, you know, Noah has written quite a few books, but we've concentrated on. Two of those books for this podcast, really, and whatever else comes up. Uh, one of the books is the original books, Dharma Punks, which I'm sure a, a big percentage of you know, and if you don't, you should, because it's great and absolutely for people who are not, you know, who have not tapped into this as much as others and might want a starting point. Uh, it's a great starting point. And then the other one is the recovery book. And, uh, you know, I really think we should concentrate a little bit on that because it's newer. It's called Refuge Recovery. And it's, it's a Buddhist uh, perspective and um, methodology, if you like, this bit dry word for a not a dry book, uh, about how to recover from various problems, including addiction. And um, when we read it, uh, we were struck by the nuances of difference uh, between 12-step and this, although there are many parallels. But for some people, uh, it might be more uh, fulfilling and more, more of a fit to go to this book. So welcome, Noah. And my first question to can, you... Can I interject, Dave? Absolutely. Because when, cause just the, the... Noah's story is so powerful, and I think so many people can relate with it. Um, that is so beautifully told in Dharma Punks. But I, I'd love for Noah just to, to just get, you know, obviously, uh, much more in brief than the book, but just an overview of growing up where he did grow up and with the two sets of parents, basically, and what happened and uh, uh, the, the kind of suffering that you went through, Noah, was uh, pretty large uh, and... How you dealt with it and and came out of it? Can you can you just go right there and so we can everybody can know what we're talking about? I mean, I think that the conditions um, were perfect for me, with just the right amount of dharma, of having kind of loving dharma parents who were meditators and uh, you know devotional practitioners, but then also uh, a tremendous amount of suffering of my own angst and, and suffering that led me at a very young age to um, start feeling suicidal. And I, th I think that um, partially because growing up around Stephen's work around hospice and death and dying and, uh, you know, ideas about reincarnation and um, that I had a very a young idea about, um, you know, we do this over and over and, you know, you can, uh, death isn't the end. And so as a young, young person, about five years old, feeling really unhappy, my parents had been divorced when I was about two years old, and I was just suffering a lot. 
And um, I started to contemplate suicide at about five years old mm-hmm. and just feel like I want out. I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. And I could just kill myself and I could like get I could start over, you know, like this, like sort of the cartoons of, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote who dies and then he's there again. And that was sort of my idea about death. I was like, oh, I could just die and start over again. And, um, you know, and I had a, a knife and a suicide sort of plan. And it, for me, I think it was really like a, uh, a security blanket. It was the kind of little bit of control that I felt, which was if it gets bad enough, I can escape. I can get out. And, um, you know, I didn't kill myself. Obviously, I'm still here, but I felt very suicidal. And, um, you know, drugs and alcohol really uh, was what I went to. You know, I started getting high. I started drinking. I started taking hallucinogens at a very young age, really, as a, as a child, as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and in the beginning, I think that drugs and alcohol were like, they were fun and they were an escape and they were an experiment and, you know, hallucinating and opening to all of these other uh, kind of dimensions and, you know, mostly just like a pleasant thing. But then pretty early on in my teenage years, when I started doing cocaine, when I started doing heroin, when I started drinking every day and drinking in the morning, and um, I just crossed a line from experimentation and, you know, partying into a drug addiction. Um, And I was a bit of a criminal. So I kept getting arrested because I was stealing. I was fighting. I was in and out of juvenile hall. And then at 17 years old, when I was really strung out and I was smoking crack cocaine pretty much every day and I was injecting heroin and I was drinking alcoholically and, um, and I was arrested for, you know, the umpteenth time and put into juvenile hall. And, you know, I was in California in Santa Cruz. My, my father was in New Mexico. Stephen and Andrea, my parents, were in New Mexico. My mother was in Santa Cruz where I was living. And um, during a phone call with my father, and he said, okay, you're locked up again. Uh, what's happening? And to back up a little bit, actually, that, that last arrest I had a kind of suicide attempt where I had been, you know, busted again and I had a seven-year prison sentence that was like a suspended sentence. And um, I did a kind of, you know, suicide attempt in the jail and woke up in the observation cell in the padded room. And, uh, you know, a day later or so, I got a call and they said, you know, you can come out of the padded room. Your father's on the phone. And... um you know, something had happened, I think, even before that phone call where, you know, there was that moment of clarity or you know, insight or whatever it is. Uh, I had always blamed everyone else for my situation. I had blamed the police, society, the system. I blamed my hippie parents' spirituality. Uh, every, you know, I, I just I, I blamed everyone else for the situation that I was in. And in, in that uh, padded room in 1988, I had the, you know, finally kind of simple realization that it was my actions, uh, that I was responsible. I was the one that got myself into that situation. It wasn't the drugs. It wasn't the police. It wasn't anybody else. I was the one uh, doing the things that were getting me into the suffering that I was experiencing. So that was sort of the setup for then my father to call and say, uh, are you ready to try meditation? <laughs> and I remember at the time feeling like, well, um, how about some real help, like a lawyer or something? Uh, <laughs> not, just, not just some meditation instructions. But I was desperate enough, and I think it was really the right time where I was desperate. I was hopeless enough that I would try anything. And so he said, you know, he gave me these simple mindfulness meditation instructions, mm-hmm. mindfulness of breathing. And I went back to my cell and I started meditating. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I had some power, some control, some ability to ignore my mind and to disobey my thoughts and emotions that were directing me towards addiction and violence and, and crime. And so to disengage from the thinking mind and start to come into the body. And it was a huge... Uh, I mean, I don't think I really got it that clearly at the time, mm. but it was really this feeling of like, there's something to this. There's some hope here. There's some relief here. And, 
you know, and then I, I became, you know, I, I got sober. I, uh, I was locked up for about eight or nine months. I was, you know, in the juvenile hall and then I was put into a group home. And the first couple of years, um, I was really embarrassed to be a meditator because I'm a punk rocker. Like, we don't meditate. That's what you guys do, right? That's for the hippies. We don't meditate. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I was getting relief from it, so I was doing it, but I was sort of uh, in the closet as a meditator. And sometimes, literally, I would meditate in my closet. <laughs> you know, it's really... Um, but a couple of years into it, I got more serious about it. Um, I asked my father uh, who I should do a meditation retreat with. He said, you know, go check out Jack Hornfield. I went to a meditation retreat with Jack. Um, that same year, I did a meditation retreat with John Amaro, the Buddhist monk. Mm. And, um, you know, just this shift happened where I started to channel the energy of addiction and the energy of rebellion into a spiritual rebellion rather than a material one, rather than a, uh, you know, kind of against society. I started to go against suffering, against the suffering that was both inside me. Um, and of course, that is also the suffering that manifests all of the problems in the world, you know, coming from the human, human experience. So I got very serious and I think I got that sort of addictive serious uh, that that um, <laughs> that's good. you know kind of compulsive meditator, and I'm going to do lots of retreats, and I'm going to get enlightened, and I'm going to I'm going to get a guru, and I'm going to you know all of that stuff, the kind of search seeking, um, and I, I feel like the first few years of my practice were pretty imbalanced, you know, as as it is for many of us, but eventually I came to a more balanced, and um, you know there was also the question for me in early practice of. Okay, my father has, you know, the the Hindu guru, and he's this sort of like mystic, um, devotional type, and the beloved, and and so I was, I knew that spiritual path, you know, also in the twelve steps, you know, being in in recovery and doing twelve step stuff, you know, they're saying find a higher power, and so I, I saw, I was searching for a while, and I was reading the Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayana, and I was reading. Uh, Sufi stuff and, you know, mystical Islamic stuff and and Buddhism, of course. But even Buddhism, it was a question. What tradition? I'm a Tibetan Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist, uh, Theravadan, Vipassana. Like, there was a whole kind of searching process. Uh, and that, that um, American spiritual supermarket, <laughs> you know, that we have of like, well, what tradition? What resonates with me? And I ended up really landing in, uh, you know, Theravadan Buddhism. I wanted to know what, who was the Buddha? What did he teach? What's the original message here? And it's just really what, what, um, what resonated most. And, um, you know, and I, I, I think I was pretty atheist minded anyway. So a lot of the mystical stuff, a lot of the devotional stuff, although I tried it on, it didn't fit well for me because I was sort of uh, more, you know, towards psychology and towards uh, kind of a non-theistic perspective on how the mind works. Um, And the mystical stuff never really uh, resonated very much with me. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the other transition, which was the straight-edge experience? Uh, Yes. Because I'm I'm very interested in that, as to what that really was. was, Straight-edge was life-saving. Actually, this T-shirt I'm wearing, SSD control, it's like an early 1980s, Straight Edge, uh, you know, East Coast Straight Edge band. Straight Edge really saved my life uh, in in some ways because I was a street punk, you know, punk rocker. And, you know, our thing was drinking and using and violence. And, you know, it it was a crazy scene. And that was my identity and that was my culture. But within the punk culture, there's also this whole movement of drug free of being clean and sober and positive and, um, you know, of taking that rebellion of, you know, what punk is really founded on dissatisfaction, dissatisfaction with the suffering in the world, dissatisfaction with the oppression in the world and taking that uh, and saying like, well, we're not going to just be part of the problem by being another drunk, violent, you know, rebel. Let's actually be a sober, positive rebellion that might actually be able to, uh, you know, create some positive change. One of my 
early straight edge bands, seven seconds. They have a line um, in it, and they're like a, this drug-free punk rock band. And they have a line in there and says, you know, we will succeed where the hippies failed. Uh, you know, kind of thinking of the hippies as, uh, you know, some of the failure coming from being too drugged out, being too intoxicated, being too uh, kind of delusional about peace. And these punk rockers saying, like, we know that they were trying to create a positive change, but the drugs got in the way of, of a lot of for a lot of the people. The drugs got in the way. And so then the, and which is also true for the punks. So the straight edge movement being this hmm. um, of saying, like, we really want to create some positive change and we feel like we need to have a, a sober mind in order to do that. Wow. That's, yep. That's a very, very clear description of straight edge. Thank you for that. You know, I might add an anecdote here. One of my best friends in the 90s, if not my best friend in New York, was Joey Ramone, uh, who I saw all the time on a weekly basis in his apartment down in the Lower East Side. And Joey, and I say this to people and they don't know what I'm talking about, Joey was definitely the kindest person I think I've ever met. Yeah. Um, I saw him on the streets. He never avoided people. He lived in a little tiny apartment. His band was one of the most influential bands in the history of music. And yet he, he maintained a, a street-level identity at all times. And when I was with him on the Lower East Side, uh, I cannot tell you how many times people came up to him because he was the icon of the Lower East Side, never avoided anybody, would help anybody, was completely clear. This is, of course, when he became sober. And I was so struck by his ability to stay punk and yet, like yourself, to make that move into loving kindness. He was an exemplar of loving kindness. And in fact, uh, I can't think of anyone offhand uh, who was more sweet to people at all times, of all kinds, of all shapes and colors. And I always thought, my goodness, you know, did he need to be a punk? In other words, did he need, and I'm speaking about you too, to go through that extremism of the rejection of so much of the consumerism and the inculcated nonsense of a consumer society in order to come to a, a, a heart place, a place of heart wisdom, yeah. uh, or, or, or not? You know, because it seems to me there are parallels here between you and him. I, I really mean that too. Could you? Well, of course, he's one. He's one of my heroes. And you know, like I said before, the punk movement is based in dissatisfaction. And you know, it's like the Buddha's first noble truth of uh, turning towards and acknowledging the suffering in life. And that's really what the punks were doing. The, the punk punk music is the first noble truth. Now, a lot of the punks don't get to the second noble truth of seeing what are the core causes and to the third noble truth of opening to the cessation and nirvana and, and the, the freedom from suffering. Um, you know, but I think punk music and the Ramones were, you know, a loud voice of, of dissatisfaction. But they also had that, they always had that celebratory, that sort of... Um, uh, let's not take this too seriously. Like, you know, we're, we're, we're all suffering so much. Let's also have a laugh about it. Mm -hmm. right. 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 You know, I'm struck by one thing uh, in terms of uh, how you briefly told your story. Um, the moment, that one moment when you said, I realized that there was a way to, to get uh, free I mean, you didn't say a way to get free from so caught in mind and emotions and so on. That moment. Can you even, can you remember? I remember that moment for me. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't go through that. I, I, as far as I was concerned, I was suffering big time. Yeah. Um, I didn't go through that kind of addiction suffering and uh, destructive suffering and, and so on. So it was very dramatic for you. Yeah. And on what, so that's one extreme and I may be in the middle and somebody else is, uh, you know, not as not as far along that road or, or even realizing what that suffering is for them. Yeah. But there's that one moment that you can actually it's a signpost when everything changes in that one moment when you realize there is a way to be happy, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And uh, I think it's really, really important for 
everyone uh, to to understand, and, and this is really relating with everybody who's listening right now, that uh, we've all had that one moment. Once you have that one moment, the only other thing that's really needed, and we won't even use a spiritual term, is trust. Trust in that one moment. You had, Noah, that trust in that moment, and you went forward. Of course, you were so horribly unhappy and just suffering. You were in a cell, right? So there's no two ways about that. But you don't have to be that far along the suffering path to have trust in in that one moment. It just occurred to me, and I just wanted uh, to share that with everybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I like what you're saying, and I think that that's part of what happened was I meditated, and I trusted the experience of the relief that it gave me. But um, it wasn't just, um, you know, in the 12 steps, they say faith without works is dead. Mm. Mm-hmm. Having that trust of like, oh, well, there is a way out. But it was really the work. It was the perseverance, I feel like, was, okay, there's that moment of awakening. And I I agree with you. I think a lot of people have that experience, but then they don't follow it up with action. You know, I think it's, um, you know, it's like Ram Dass said about, you know, people using LSD to open the doors of perception. And then having that sort of like, okay, people, you know, you've seen You've seen something here, but you can't keep using the LSD to open that door. Now you have to use a spiritual path, a meditative path, so that that's a door that you can access without an intoxicant, without a, you know, a mind-altering substance. Mm. And I think that for me that that's really what it was, was I saw the, the meditation, that there was hope here, and that, that I just I trusted it and I persevered. Noah, do you think there's a, an essential difference between shamanistic transformation like ayahuasca is almost a trend right now um you know uh it's not something i've experienced but i've experienced similar things is there a great deal of difference between that as long as you don't become you know totally reliant upon it and upon other drugs with the word drug rather than um sacrament or you know can you talk about that for a little I don't, I, I don't really know, you know, I've been sober so long that, you know, ayahuasca wasn't on the radar. I mean, I took a lot of hallucinogens and I think a lot of people would treat, you know, LSD or mushrooms or, you know, I took mescaline a bunch of times, but, um, as those sort of, you know, it could be done ceremonial or as a sacrament or as a, you know, um, I didn't use drugs that, that way. You know, I use drugs to get high, <laughs> you know, I wasn't looking for a spiritual experience. I was looking for escape. So, um, I, so I don't really know the answer. I mean, I know that there's a, a lot of conversation about ayahuasca and in the, um, drug treatment field. Now there's a lot of conversation about Ibogaine, about this, um, kind of, uh, African root medicine that is a hallucinogen that, uh, does something to the, uh, receptors and the opiate receptors in the mind. And that helps people detox from, uh, from heroin, from opiates, especially. And so there's a lot of, you know, so I'm open. I'm, I'm a little curious about, you know, using these sort of plant-based medicines for people's, uh, spiritual or recovery process, but I mostly land in a, uh, abstinence-based, you know, kind of perspective. And I think also Buddhism has really fueled that of, you know, the Buddha's teaching around the fifth precept to, you know, if you're serious about being awake, don't put substances in your body that put you to sleep, you know, and then that's why drugs and alcohol and even hallucinogen uh, things may feel so good is because they tune you out a bit to, uh, you know, to the reality of the craving and the aversion and, uh, and the Buddhist teaching of like, don't tune out, tune in, turn towards, face directly. It's the and opposite of Tim. What would Tim say about that? But listen, we've also, no, we, David and I have been doing some stuff recently. Just, we found a couple of article, a beautiful article about how they're using psychedelics of various kinds in conjunction with end of life, in conjunction with PTSD and in conjunction with, uh, with uh, uh, deep depressive suicidal tendencies to great effect. So just, uh, Everything is right. It depends who you are and what you need in that moment. And that takes yeah. intuitive discrimination uh, as much as we can get that. Um, yeah. So one of the other, we're talking about moments that just change your life. And you had that moment and then you pursued it. 
Then there was another moment when you met His Holiness in Dharamsala. Can you? I just, I and we all love His Holiness so much, and you had a special experience. And yeah. t- just talk about that. Tell us that story. Well, you know, I went to Asia like many people do with uh, naive hopes of enlightenment and, you know, of, of finding, you know, the guru or the path or the experience that would, you know, kind of change me forever. Um, and uh, I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't find it. I didn't have any of those big experiences. Um, but I was, you know, but I brought mindfulness and compassion and, you know, my practices and I learned. And the, the experience that you're, um, referring to, you know, the, I think the first time I went to India and I went up to Dharamsala and, um, you know, did the pilgrimage thing where you get to be received by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And um, I did have, you know, a little bit of a kind of thrilling, energetic experience of kind of getting to come up and get the blessing and, and to meet him. And uh, it was very inspiring. He's always been an inspiring a teacher to me. And I've had several different occasions over the years where I've gotten to have, you know, a short meeting blessing with him. Uh, you know, when he was in, uh, at Spirit Rock many years later, we were doing this big teacher meeting and he came up to me and he, he grabbed my arms and he looked at my tattoos and he said, uh, very colorful. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like laughing with me about my tattoos and looking at my tattoos and it was just a very sweet moment for me. But that moment in Dharamsala, the first moment, uh, I remember reading where you said that meeting uh, was your first inspiration to share teachings and experience that you had with, uh, with others. It was that moment. Do you remember that? I think that what you're referring to was that there was a moment over there in India around the time that I met the Dalai Lama where... Uh, it started to become more clear to me that the Dharma was the only thing that's really important to me and that I didn't care so much about the physical body and working in, in the healthcare industry. I cared more about the, the mind and heart and spirit, whatever we call it. And, and that it was really at that point where I decided to, uh, you know, set the intention to, to become a teacher and to share the Dharma with others. That was really the only important thing to me in my life. Yeah. You know, you use the word intention there, and one of the most compelling parts of, of uh, refuge recovery to me was your delineation of intention and how central it is to all motivation and dynamic, spiritual dynamic. And I would really like you to, you know, to go into that word intention and why it is so central to the Dharma. Yeah. Well, this is the second factor of the Eightfold Path when the Buddha talks about here's the cause of suffering, here's the the possibility of the end of suffering, here's the path that will lead to the end of suffering. He starts with understanding, understanding karma, understanding dependent origination, you know, understanding reality the way it is, not our delusions, but seeing total personal responsibility. Then we open to the second factor of the Eightfold Path, which um, begins to show us that all of our karma comes from our intentional actions, our intentional thoughts, our intentional uh, speech and, and deeds, and that really uh, the, the intention, the, the uh, direction of our life, the goal, is going to come from seeing that many of our um, unconscious drives are driven by greed, are driven by hatred are driven by self-centered confusion. You know, we have these instinctual drives that drive us towards craving for pleasure and aversion to pain, which turns into ill will and and, uh, hatred and sometimes even, um, you know, violence or oppression. Uh, And this this drive towards pleasure that can turn into greed and lust and self-centered craving. And so when we start a path and we say, I want to be happy, and we understand that, well, greed and hatred and delusion are never going to lead to happiness. And we have to make the intention of non-greed, the intention of non-hatred, the intention of, of being aware and being present. Whoops. Noah <laughs> seems Noah? to have disappeared into cyberspace. Oh, my goodness. Yep. He's uh, evolved on. 
I mean, he's such a high consciousness, he just couldn't take another minute of Raghu and Dave. He's gone. <laughs> oh, boy. This has never happened to us before, folks. But no. uh, we, um, we're definitely going to nab Noah again because we love some of the stuff he was saying and this stuff he was just talking about intention, which is so very important for everybody to get a handle on. Without intention, uh, very little can happen for us. Uh, and and Dave, I'll just say one thing: the intention, um, the the motivation for intention for me is that once you realize that you have trust, that there's a that spark that happens that Ramdas talked about in this. Uh, by the way, this great podcast around the spark on uh, it's the current uh, podcast on Ramdas here and now on uh, you can go just flip over here from MindPod network from mind rollers here mind rolling to uh, Ramdas and once you have that spark you then have a trust in the just there's so many words for it but should we just say the the innate intelligence that is operating in our universe is and once you have that trust, then you've got the motivation for intent to develop it. I think that that's such uh, uh, an important thing. Do you agree? With uh, yeah, I, I think your description is incredible. Um, I, I, I couldn't add any more to that because the only thing I, I would say is that I see it as a kind of engine, you know, like an engine that is in, one, in, in you and, and it, if you have it and you nurture it, it helps you get through almost everything because you have trust as, as Raghu. Trust is such mm. the central word. Uh, I use it more than faith because faith is another one of those words that's lost its power yep. somehow. Yep. You know, like uh, God, like guru, you know, words like that. Yep. Um, but trust is a word that we all sort of, you know, uh, we, we vibe with, you know. And, and I might say that when I was first becoming interested in in shall we say spiritual matters um it was around people i'd already known who i trusted because yeah. they were honest you know and the very fact that they said well you know there's this place in the himalayas where you know there's this old man in a blanket and he just changed my life forever i didn't think they were lying or that they were making it up because there were many of them and then my trust in them as people allowed me to have trust in their in their vision and what they'd taken into themselves of of this um of this expanded universe that they encountered and i don't know whether that's the same type, type of trust but it, it's very important to me because it means that you're not just you know sailing against the wind you're sailing with the the, the wind is the trust and you're and it's sailing your boat in the right direction because you believe in it and you know how to handle it and so um you know, that's why some people fall down in terms of spiritual progress because they trust in people who are not trustworthy, like gurus who tell you to cut your balls off. I mean, <laughs> that's a good start. To bring him away. <laughs> we're we're going to mention him on every every show from now on. You know. <laughs> oh God, help us! Late Ragu for this. I'm an innocent bystander. Yeah, it's all I me. Didn't know about this guy. <laughs> we're not going to talk about him. We're not yeah. going to talk about him. Um, um, but we do want to say uh, about Noah. Yeah. Um, his story, you got to read Dharma Punks because his story is just uh, uh, very, very poignant. I mean, he had a lot of suffering. I mean, in terms of suffering waking you up, he had everything he could possibly handle. And his father, it, 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 there's a lot of karma here. And so uh, that, of course, go up to Amazon to the link and, uh, and pick up Dharma Punks. And he just wrote a new book called Refuge Recovery because Noah does a lot of work around helping people with addiction um, uh, as a result of him getting through his own many, many, many years ago. So he is somebody who is really taking up social action uh, in, in a way that is so positive. And uh, we, we love him and what he represents. Um, you can go to uh, his website. He's got a few websites. Uh, and the one I would recommend is called Against thestream.org and you can see uh, his schedule as well if you want to catch up with him he's on the west coast so Noah Levine and uh, Dave uh, this is it for the week well against the stream I just wanted to 
mention that because I'm glad you mentioned it because it's, it sounds like the exact opposite of the 60s uh, uh, fake mantra, go with the flow. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 what he means, you'll see it in the book, far better articulated than anything I could say, which is, you know, you just go against the stream of the egos, the egos drive, the egos, uh, you know, massive hold upon our behavior, our thoughts, our actions and reactions. And he's saying, ah, that's the flow of the ego. Swim against that. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. In other words, he's being realistic. He's saying, just go with the flow, man. It'll be cool. You'll be cool, baby. You'll be... He's saying the opposite of that. He's saying it's a tough road going against the stream of the ego's power. But you must do it if you want to find peace. And his books are really, really resonant because we know he's doing this work outside the books. You know, he's writing books and sitting, you know, in a, in a sort of a, 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 a position of, oh, read my book and I'm cool. It's more like I do this for a living. I help people. Yeah. I help uh, people who've got massive addiction problems and other things with deep Buddhist lore uh, translated by himself into a language that uh, his and our generation can really understand. And so... Noah is a massive figure for uh, a believable, incredible teacher and helper. Hmm. Good. Well, yeah. well said. Well said, David. Sincere. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, so everybody, uh, yeah, check out the T-shirts on mindpodnetwork.com. A whole new way to help support uh, these podcasts and... Uh, we appreciate the support that you have been giving, and uh, David and I uh, wish you adieu for yes. another week. See you later, uh, folks. Bye. bye.